0: Hi everybody, and welcome to No Country. My name is Jay David Osborne. That is Chris Sacnasim. Chris, how are you doing this evening?
1: I'm I'm well, David. I I, I learned an interesting truth today, though. What is it? Um, well, people may be familiar with the the saying, if not the 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 practice. If you can't win, the next best thing is to upset the chessboard. Well, inspired by Gary Kasparov, the, the great chess grandmaster, I've been, I did his master class uh, mm-hmm. video learning thing. Mm-hmm. And I, I got out my board and I started, uh, you know, actually using some of the techniques that he taught, uh, playing myself. <laughs> mm-hmm. And uh, I got involved in a really, really interesting game and black which as people would know is is often thought to be at a disadvantage because it moves second that that's not really true i don't think but anyway i i i had just geometrically looking at the board something so much more interesting going on than i would have had before taking his his video course hmm. and then i started to get a little tense uh And uh, I I thought about a long time ago where I'd been playing uh, a cousin and I'd gotten kind of tired of pulling his underwear up over his head and just sort of hassling him. And um, he made a really good move. And I I hate to say this, I got kind of upset And, and I didn't intend to upset the chessboard. Really, literally, but psychologically, you know, in a Freudian sort of way, maybe I did. Right. And um, so as I'm looking at this board and here I am playing myself, right, um, I I suddenly felt like, oh, my God, this is really getting, this is getting a little bit serious. Mm -hmm. And I moved and I upset the chessboard. (laughs) So I don't even have a visual reference. I was taking some photographs, but I was back about four moves. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to try to reconstruct this interesting game where I was uh, kind of bedeviling and bamboozling myself. So that's where my starting point is today.
0: It's so interesting that you have been getting into chess because I have as well. I've been watching classic games on YouTube where they've been going through, you know, the great matches of chess for like move by move and explaining what's been going on. And <clears throat> it really brings a depth of understanding of the coolness of the game, which is sort of how I got into poker at first too. I think it's a it's a fun game in a similar way where anybody can pick it up. But when you start to realize what's going on inside the heads of the poker players or the chess players, it becomes a very fascinating sort of study in in planning and strategy so it's interesting that you're going along those lines as well
1: yeah i I think both those games in, in different registers have something to offer uh you know curious investigative minds i mean a lot of writers have been attracted to both those games individually or or in combination uh david mamet obviously wrote a great deal about poker uh it's phenomenally interesting psychologically, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, there's just so much to, to learn. Um, I, I really, really get how people can um, obsess on those those uh, challenges yeah. um, because they're they offer uh, you know, a framework and a kind of competitive field with parameters and yet within them it seems to me there's an enormous possibility for creativity. Oh,
0: creativity is the perfect word for it. I think that in the best classic chess games that I've seen, what made them so classic was people completely rethinking how the board even works, utilizing pawns in ways that have never been seen before and sacrificing key pieces to get into a critical position. Um, It's a very new field for me. I'm just now getting into it, but I'm sort of hooked. I've been playing the computer on my phone, uh, before I go to bed, in lieu of going on social media, which is definitely an upgrade, but uh, the computer has beaten me every <laughs> single time. But for one, I got us to a stalemate at one point where we we couldn't move anymore, and I was very oh, proud of that. That's
1: very that's an enormous achievement. I I, I have something to, to follow up on from the Kasparov point of view at the maybe later as as this uh, uh, discussion develops, but. I think that's very, very interesting, and I really, really support that. Um, one of the things that, one of the first things that Kasparov gets to is um, the power of pawns, particularly as a as a game develops, um, which is something that you kind. I mean, by definition, you think a pawn. You know, come on, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But wow, does he reverse all of that and? The beautiful, you know, uh, one of the, chess is just filled with some great terms, you know, of course. But I, I love a very simple, t- you know, the discovered attack, um, mm-hmm. which is kind of a beautiful, uh, I mean, that applies to, you know, to jazz music, to, you know, any kind of improvisation. Um, it's, it's, it's a wonderful idea of, of that balance of planning. And that idea of strategy and having a sense of game and personal style, but you're still confronting an you know an opponent, and you whether it's a a, a living human being of varying skill or or a computer, um, which is a very odd idea, which I think we do yeah. need to talk more about. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but the idea of of having to Modify plans and make things up on the fly, and I mean I think that's a tremendous, uh, you know, analogy correlate with with writing. You know, when when things get going in an interesting way, for me anyway, it's because I'm off the map and I've thrown away the outline and I I no longer <laughs> working <Yeah>. with my <laughs> preconceptions anymore. Those you, are...
0: you've discovered an attack.
1: Yeah. 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 Yeah, I think that's very interesting that you're we're going to have to incorporate that into uh, our one of our themes for the new year, because I think that is so rich. And I know there are a lot of people and I'm sure some of our listeners are very keen about the game, at least in in conceptual terms, even if they don't bring an enormous amount of experience. But uh, I mean, I've had some really, really interesting times where playing chess the communion across the board mm-hmm. you know you're at close quarters with someone there's a kind of an intimacy to it you know yep. and yet you have this focal point so it's not it's not exactly a conversation in a conventional sense and yet it is a deep kind of dialogue where you're seeing into each other's Intellects and souls, you know, mm-hmm. I really think that's true. Um, I, f-
0: I first got into it because uh, my friend Eric had manufactured these chess pieces out of pieces of iron in his studio, and he was very proud of this chess board. And his roommate is a guy named Braden, and I, I just was watching Braden dismantle everybody who stepped into his arena. And these were people who, you know, fancied themselves chess aficionados. You know, they, they either went from dabbling to being very serious about it, but it was like watching a, a, a master sort of play with these people. And Brayden is a very intelligent person who I enjoy talking with immensely, but, you know, I mean, he works at the local coffee shop and is a very quiet and down-to-earth individual, but he is very into chess. And I was watching what he was doing, and I was thinking, I want I want to be able to access that level of strategy and planning uh, in the game, because it 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 feels like it could be beneficial in life.
1: I, I think it is, you know, I, I think this is a great meeting, Grant. It makes me think of, you know, Central Park in New York on a, you know, on a summer day, you know, and people who've been uh, in, there's a certain part of the park. It's sort of, I guess, up by Tavern on the Green, I, I think from memory, but, you know, the, there are many places probably uh, where, where chess players gather and it, it's such a meeting ground of, of cultures. You know, you've got these old Jewish men, you've got black people, you've got men, women, kids, mm-hmm. you've got rich people from, you know, <laughs> Central Park West, you've got people from Harlem, you've got, it's it's a tremendous meeting ground of of not just uh, of intellectual challenge, there is certainly that, and that's very exciting to see across these you know levels of class and and income. But there is this tremendous socialization that's that's sort of going on that I think a lot of people um, who who don't have experience of chess maybe don't think of it that you know in those terms, but mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. Uh, it's gaining you know popularity and it is truly a world world game you know it is uh, yeah. from it, it's just amazing um so that's really cool well that that we'll will earmark that as something that we can um continue to explore we because I, I think it's 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 got so much uh ground uh within it you know it mm-hmm. um I'm Who particularly would think interested. Squares, you know. Yeah,
0: I'm particularly interested in the applications of chess strategy to creative endeavors. So we will definitely earmark that. I I hope everybody enjoyed that introduction. I I certainly did. But Chris, um, what are we going to talk about today?
1: Okay, well, I thought we'd follow up on our last episode where we did look more closely at um, one of our uh, intellectual and, and I think spiritual heroes, if I could use that term, Rupert Sheldrake, um, the biologist and, and popular science writer and a parapsychological investigator and in many uh, people's eyes, uh, people like Richard Dawkins and the scientific establishment, <laughs> uh, a kind of um, a scientific heretic. Um, right. And I, I, I think there is so much good material. Sheldrake is an immensely articulate uh, man, as, as we mentioned, and, and there's a great deal of uh, information and presentation of him available on YouTube. So you, you get to see a lot of him... Uh, presenting his own ideas. He's a, he's a great advocate for his positions, and he's well aware of his, uh, his uh, heretic uh, label. Um, but he doesn't shy away from, from making his cases and continuing uh, a lifelong uh, commitment to, to scientific research, even if it doesn't follow in, um, you know, the, 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 the boundaries and categories and the ruts that have been prescribed for him, um, and I keep finding some, some new interesting things. I, I think I know pretty much, I've read everything that he's written, I, I've followed, uh, you know, these uh, lectures and, and podcasts that he's been on, but I continue to find new things. Uh, and he has talked a lot about recently about um, some practices that we would associate, spiritual practices, that we can all follow without any system of belief behind that. And he points out that many people who are con, you know, confirmed atheists are, are seeing benefits in things like meditation and you know uh, pilgrimage even, uh, of making special you know journeys to, to places of significance. But I just came across this line just just which I thought is, is a really beautiful one. You can't celebrate a festival on your own. He's talking about the re-emergence of festivals around the world, Glastonbury, Burning Man, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I thought that was a beautiful analogy, metaphor for language as a festival. You know, hmm. we have a lot of metaphors hmm. for language, you know, including some, some you know, kind of uh, dire ones, like it's a virus that somehow parasitized uh, the human brain and, and human culture. Um but I, I think the idea of a festival is is an interesting uh, and very you know uplifting sort of model, but I thought we would kind of tease out this idea of he's been called uh, a perpetrator of dangerous <laughs> ideas. So I, I thought, what does dangerous ideas mean to you?
0: <laughs> yeah, I think that that is the thrust of what we're going to be talking about tonight in particular uh, this idea that there are ideas that are somehow how dangerous you hipped me to a, a Sheldrake interview on YouTube uh, with virtual futures that I was watching actually before we started recording this and he talks he makes this great point that I'd never heard him made before um, about how you can find pluralism in a lot of disciplines across you know, human knowledge. So philosophy is pluralistic. There are different ideas about how things work. Religions, obviously, are pluralistic. Uh, there are different doctrines that people believe and don't believe, and they argue about these things. Even politics, you have Republicans and Democrats. You have different ideas about how things like the economy should be run. And in science... It's unique in the fact that when you have a different idea in science, whether that is biology or medicine or astronomy, the idea that you might have a different thought about how things work fundamentally <clears throat> is considered dangerous. So it's very unique in that way. Um Sorry, go ahead. You are going to say something? Well, that is a
1: very interesting, you know, th- that, that triggered an interesting thought that I, I hadn't, um, I, I believe it was, uh, you know, Coco Chanel, uh, the great mm-hmm. genius of, 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 of fashion and, and fragrance and, you know, uh, female uh, beauty, but also uh, the aesthetics of, of male fashion and, and the idea of physical human beauty. Uh, she commented on that, you know, a, a long time that that science, you know, and, and and it was in the context of talking about some of the investigations of, um, the the science behind perfumes and and cologne and 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 the pursuit of fra- fragrance. And I think there's a beautiful book called Perfume, um, which I um, I think I've seen the movie. Um, but she she mentioned, you know, that that pluralism. Uh, is at the heart of, of our notion of, of human beauty, and therefore beauty at large. Um, and, and of course for her, beauty was something really quite intricate and, and complex. And our definitions of what, say, makes a beautiful woman or a beautiful man, we entertain many, many, many possibilities there, you know, happily. And yet, when it comes to a beautiful uh, scientific idea, Mm -hmm. we have some problems. And I think this ties back into some interesting thoughts about a beautiful mathematical solution, which, again, there's an enormous amount of pluralism accepted there. Mm -hmm. And to tie into our intro idea of chess, you know, the great chess grandmasters, innovators, talk about beautiful chess ideas. Yeah. And and they're always talking about it in a very pluralistic, lateral, diagonal, or the word that I use, the concept I use is spiral. Mm. Uh, I love spirals. Um, There's this enormous range of possibility as opposed to this rigorous Richard Dawkins, Daniel uh, Dennett-driven um, orthodoxy, which has somehow seized, and I love that term of, you know, an engine seizing up, <laughs> you yeah, know, right. I, I think that's kind of where we're at. And, and Sheldrake, you know, one of his subtitles is, is the liberation of science today. Um, so, I mean, I guess the question is danger and dangerous ideas, that seems to me to imply fear. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, you're afraid of, of danger or, or, you know, unless you're like you and me, we're attracted to it. Um, and that's kind of like all you need to say, you know, if you say something's a dangerous idea, well, you know, kind of we're, we're there. I mean, that we're running
0: into the burning building.
1: Yeah. And I don't know. I mean, is that, you know, is that just us? And, and I, I don't know, but what are your thoughts on that? Is that necessarily, um, I mean, I don't think you and I can change our natures that way. I don't think that we have any desire to do that. But maybe that's not um, something you know. We should say, "Well, don't try this at home," kind of thing. What What do you think about that?
0: Sure, I think it's a part of our nature. I think that it would be, it wouldn't be true to ourselves to not admit that that bit of us that's a bit iconoclastic. <clears throat> but what I've seen in my research on both the sort of dogmatic side of, of science and the more heretical side of science is that they both get to the same end point, which is that they don't know certain things. Um, but it seems to me that the heretical side often seems to be a bit more lenient with that stuff that we do not know. Um, so for my sins, I watched a Richard Dawkins interview before this show, and I took notes while I was watching it. And this is a very, very recent uh, interview. This episode is being recorded on December twenty seventh, so this was posted on December twenty fourth. So this is the latest, straight off the presses Dawkins. Uh, surprisingly, not very different from the Dawkins of the 1980s. s. Um, but it's on a podcast put together by Tom Bilyeu, uh who's a, a sort of a millionaire. Uh, self-help guru type guy. I get a lot of value out of Tom's show, so I'm not denigrating him in any way, shape, or form. I think he's had very interesting people on his show, but I was a bit taken aback by how sort of unquestioning and also fanboyish he was about uh, some of the things that Dawkins was saying. So if it's cool with you, I'd like to sort of go through my notes here and get your commentary on them. Sure, absolutely. Cool. So the interview starts, and the first thing that I noticed was that Dawkins brought up a lawsuit that his organization is bringing up against different uh, homeopathic medicine companies in the interest of keeping them from practicing homeopathy and having homeopathic remedies on the same shelf as things like Tylenol and Advil and things like that. And he said that homeopathy is bad because it uses a small version of of the offending agent in order to cure the thing, right? And he said that homeopathy believes that the smaller the, 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 the cure is, the more it's diluted, the more effective it is. And he said, well, that's nonsense. So immediately I was thinking, well, if I poke you with a blunted knife, that's much different than poking you with a sharp knife, right? And the sharp knife's point is much smaller than the blunted knife. So that's just me sort of already being critical of this guy. But then he started throughout the interview to have these sort of ticks or phrases that he would go back to, and he talks about things that are true. And the point that he is trying to make with his work these days, because he's been accused of being a bit of a curmudgeon, a bit of a Mr. No Fun, right? what he is claiming is that reality is in fact beautiful, and these are his words, because of what is true. And I thought those words were fascinating. So he keeps bringing up this idea of nonsense. He says nonsense a lot, and he says truth a lot. And there's never any explanation of what these two things mean, and what he means in regard to his opposition. He's very dismissive of anything that's not in the cathedral of Richard Dawkins. So, what is anything coming to you with that? Like, I don't know. That that to me immediately set off my sensors of just somebody saying something is true, true, true. It brought me back to my days uh, being dragged by my, you know by my collar to a Southern Baptist church where everything was true. And I was expected to believe that it was true just because.
1: Okay. Well, well three things crossed my mind and I'll take them sort of in reverse order. Um, I, I think that in 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 not even in the back of, of Dawkins' mind is exactly the kind of opposition that you've just mentioned in terms of a a pretty, if not a directly fundamentalist uh, Christian point of view, and and we would, you know, include uh, not just the weirdo uh, Protestant uh, Pentecostal, you know, literally fundamentalist churches, but, you know, the the larger edifice of of the Catholic uh, monolith. Um, So he's certainly setting that up as a constant uh, oppositional frame, which I understand that, and I understood what you just said about your own personal experience. But I think that's a bit of a straw man argument today, given that we are seeing a tremendous departure, at least in, uh, in the West, from uh, you know the, the Christian positions. I think that um, there's a very strong Muslim faith based around the world. Mm-hmm. Um, i don 't think that people are are migrating away from uh, organized religion per se in in the way that sometimes is said but but there 's certainly in America, for instance, there is certainly a movement away that it does not mean, and Rupert sheldrake it, it makes this point very very well that people are, are as hungry uh, at, even hungrier than 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 ever. For, for spiritual practice and spiritual connection, they may not be articulate in, in how they phrase that, but the, the need, the desire, the craving is there. Um, so I think that in some ways, um, Dawkins does have a, a be in his bonnet that has, has paid, you know, him a lot of money. Um, and he needs to keep the, the boogeyman of religious orthodoxy there to hide from the fact of his own uh, scientism orthodoxy. And uh, my friend, you know, Jim Ert uh, made a wonderful comment the other day of that, you know, Dawkins was effective when he was attacking religion. And then he realized how uh, lucrative and fun it was to have his own, you know? Mm. And I think that's, that's very, very, very well said. Um, The next thing, it was the first thing, actually, that occurred to me when you were talking about uh, homeopathy and his opposition to that. I I pictured in my mind a Formula One uh, race driver with all of the, and it could be any athlete or, you know, all of the sponsorship logos, you -hmm. know. And Mm -hmm. and we've seen some comedy things where you, you, you can't even see the face of the person because they're covered in all these logos of, of who's sponsoring them. And I, I think that, that Dawkins is very clearly sponsored by big pharma, big science establishment, that there is a lot of money in this. In, I mean, the whole idea, Correct. we used to have the military industrial complex. Now we have the pharmaceutical uh, industrial complex. And people support that, not just on the basis of ideology. It's It's commercial. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. it's money in hand, so mm-hmm. we can't dismiss that. I mean, follow the money is a good old street level bit of wisdom, I think. And I think that's um, that's that's very, very important to, to keep in mind. The other thing is that I think, and it is a tricky thing, um, because I feel it in certain ways in terms of a commitment, my personal commitment to certain strains of, of humanism and, and intellectual and artistic work. Um, I, I still have a great deal of support for the Western canon. Um, and I, I, I think that we're losing touch with that in educational terms to the detriment of, of uh, intellectual practice and, and the pursuit of, of knowledge. I think that 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 body of work is so pluralistic and has drawn on so many international and multicultural resources. Um, I mean, just for example, I think that we would include, I would certainly include in the Western canon, the thousand and one nights, you know, a great compendium of, of three major world cultures that are not Western at all. Um, so I think there's, there's a tremendous amount of draw on world knowledge within that program of, of, of classical Western learning. And I think, to, to be fair to Dawkins, that, that when he sort of insists on truth and, and gets on his high horse about things, I think he is just, you know, we have to bear in mind that, that he's an English scientist who grew up with a certain, you know, intellectual tradition. He is a fearsome intellect, or was, um, and if he's gotten sort of calcified and encrusted a little bit with his own self importance, well, that happens when you, you know, you sell millions of copies, um, yeah. you yeah. know, I mean, yeah. he's, he's not working in, in, uh, you know, the Stephen King genres, you know, he's, he's selling lots of books in, in a, in a category that, you know, no one had ever done that before, um. So some of that's forgivable, but I think he's also kind of responding to a general collapse of, of intellect and learning and discipline and the belief in a body of knowledge that has come down the years and managed to survive with the input of, of millions of people around the world. It is very multicultural. It's deeply pluralistic. And if, in his presentation, it seems a little bit monolithic and eurocentric. Um, that's the one part of his whole deal. I think that if you if you queried him on that, he would he would break that down and 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 just start pulling that apart and saying no, that that's not really right.
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: mm-hmm. So it, it's unfortunate what, what what's happened to him. But you know, I mean, some of this is is a very strange. Ideological thing, and I think we we could tie him in with with one of his cohorts, Daniel Dennett, um, and and say that part of their problem is this uh, this radical atheism, which I mean th- that isn't scientific, and it's not necessary. Um, Let's look at Daniel Dennett's book, Darwin's Dangerous Idea. Mm. I mean, there you go, right? Mm. Talk about, dan- you know. Can I stop well, you for just a second?
0: I've, I've, I just want to inject a quote from Dawkins uh, that I think is going where you're going. Okay. Um, he's quoted in the interview as saying, um, you know, we've solved the big problem. Darwin solved the big problem. So I just want to throw that quote out there. Sorry to interrupt, oh, but I, I think that that's, I, I feel like that was where you were going.
1: Yes, I, it I, is and I it wanted, absolutely I wanted, to, is. I wanted to put that
0: in there, but please continue:
1: it, Well, you know, I, I think that is an incredibly uh, radical, blinkered idea for someone who came up through the ranks as a biologist mm-hmm. and who was working with graduate students and in theory should still be working with graduate students um, I mean I don't know what you would tell those people about well you know Darwin worked it all out it's all finished it's all done well <laughs> you know it just ain't so it just ain't so well he was and- talking
0: about I mean, he was talking about these about how and he did it in a very inarticulate way so my current inarticulacy is not a reflection on on me it's on him <laughs> but he was talking about fish you know coming out of the water and a part of their gills becoming some sort of uh, mechanism in uh, reptile necks that evolved into mammalian necks and the whole time I'm watching this I'm, I I want I wanted to ask I was like well where are these fish with necks where in the where in the <laughs> fossil records are the fish with necks Why have we not found those yet we found amazing fossils all over the world never found a fish with a neck so what happened Mr Dawkins? Dr. Well, Dawkins. that's just Excuse a me.
1: beautiful question to throw I mean I think where are the fish with necks is 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 you know and we could start our list of uh, of, of, of gently uh, I mean they're not even critical uh, questions they're simply what what's what scientists uh, and certainly uh, life scientists and biologists and and their related fields I mean that's exactly the kind of question they should be asking and to be fair, there is an exciting new group of young uh, life scientists around the world. And there are many more um, women joining the ranks. Uh, mm-hmm. There are some interesting mm-hmm. entomologists in, in Australia who are taking up the challenge. I mean, there are, you know, are 20,000 spiders uh, uncatalogued in, in merely the, the museum in South Australia alone. Mm -hmm. So there's an enormous amount of work that that we have yet to do. The fossil record, we're continuing to find, you know, make new discoveries. We're finding an awful lot about um, early human development and and the idea of the human um, geographical dispersion around the world. So I mean that that's a very very strange position that Dawkins and 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 Dennett have gotten into. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean they seem to have a kind of of religious worship yes. of yes, of correct. Darwin, the 1850s Darwin, not the 1830s voyage of the Beagle Darwin. And I, I've spoken about that younger figure um, who was so much more open to to the pluralism of life. Very interesting younger man Darwin was, but, but as he got older and, and, and physical afflictions kind of dominated his, his life, um, I mean, so much of uh, On the Origin of Species has to do with uh, the atheist project of, of really eliminating the need for God. Um, and I think that it's not a surprise then that that resonates with with people like Daniel Dennett, who's as much, uh, well, at Dawkins too. They they are really part of that triumvirate of of the new atheism. Yep. But I mean, to to read Dennett, you know, you would think that Lamarck made no contribution whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Lyle in in geology, who was so vital to the younger Darwin, uh, Wallace. I've been I've been anybody who wants to read some beautiful. Natural history writing, read Wallace's uh, Companion of of the Malay Archipelago. Hmm. It is just superb. But then, you know, what about Mendel's work on on genetics? I mean, that has played such a crucial role in the theory of evolution moving forward. Mm -hmm. And and, and yet, no mention of that. Mm -hmm. So I'm not seeing the good science. In, in Richard right. Dawkins. Right. I'm just not seeing that. I'm seeing a departure and an abandonment of science in the name of an ideological pursuit of his boogeyman, which is traditional religion. I've been doing
0: a lot of reading recently of uh, theologians. So I've been diving really deep into Thomas Merton and Paul Tillich and uh, read this great book by, by John A.T. Robinson called Honest to God. Have you heard of this text?
1: I haven't but I've certainly heard of, of and, and, and know Tillich's work very well.
0: yeah so Robinson uh, wrote this book in the early 1960s when there was a lot of really interesting theological work going on um, and these guys were bishops and you know knew that their work was in in Merton's case you know he was a monk. they sort of knew that their work was going to be rejected by the establishment. I'm attracted to heretics all over the place. They can be religious. They can be scientific. doesn't really matter. If I hear the word mystic or esoteric, it's like a a fly on poop. (laughs) I get you. I hear you. I'm I'm just there. So it was either Robinson or Tillich who said that these types of atheists who we're talking about, he posited that they are better Christians than most actual Christians, right? Because their belief in a supernatural god as this kind of super being that controls all all these things has to be more firmly in place right than that of the mystics in order for their entire atheistic theology if we can say that to even work
1: does that make sense like it makes perfect sense i i to me it does anyway <laughs> um and I, I I think that really kind of closes out. Uh, I mean, I'm I'm a little surprised that someone of of Dawkins' uh, wide reading, um, I mean, I, in chess playing terms, it seems he he's left himself wide open on that front. I just don't know why uh, he hasn't you know addressed that you know in a kind of intellectual due diligence sort of sense. Yeah, it feels like um, he's it
0: feels like he's he's you know fighting windmills at this point. You know, he's he's fighting against a conception of a God and a conception of a sort of universal consciousness or even a, a conception of of morphic resonance. He's fighting against a very, you know, sort of fundamentalist theistic fire and brimstone preacher in rural Mississippi, right? Like that's that is his straw man who he's always fighting against. And there's been so many interesting things going on in the world of Eastern mysticism, Western esotericism, hermeticism, um, even these guys who I'm talking about, Merton and Robinson and all these people who, who have simply complicated the idea of what God actually is. He, he's not engaging with any of these ideas on their face. He's strawmanning them into this category of, you know, oh, you believe in the invisible man in the sky, which is bizarre well, because most of these people would step back and say, "Look through look through our extensive bibliographies. When do we say that God's an, a man in the sky who made everything happen? That's not what we're saying.
1: That's exactly right. And so I mean, this is Daniel Dennett's whole thing. He talks about sky hooks. You know, his whole – I mean, and, and the odd thing is, of course, that Daniel Dennett it looks a little bit like Charles I Garth, was going to
0: say – it's so you funny. Know. The joke I was going to make – I didn't want to interrupt you, but the joke <laughs> I was going to make was like Daniel Dennett wins the – Charles Darwin look-alike contest of all these guys that we're talking
1: about. Right? Right? <laughs> you know, I mean, we got it. I mean, Freud is just rolling over wanting to get back into the fray here because, I For mean, real. it's just... It's so ludicrously obvious. But, you know... As a tonic, another person that I would love to see from the past come back right at this particular moment, particularly, is William James, yep. who I think yes. was the most pluralistic. And he writes about pl- I mean pluralism is one of the, the titles of one of his books. Correct. But here's someone who could speak with great authority and a Michael Faraday-like ability to explain himself to. Classrooms at Harvard, but he could also go out to lyceums and Chautauquas to talk to tradesmen and farmers and women with six kids. And he would make himself understood. I mean, he was completely fluent in six languages. You know, he was reading in Greek and Latin, he was up on Eastern religions and Eastern thought. And He had time for so many small questions like, does a a, a squirrel actually, you know, get itself around a tree? Is that the way we should think about it? You know, do we run from a bear because we're afraid or do we just instinctively run and then we call that after the fact? Right.
0: Exactly. You know,
1: I mean, he uh, there's a great I I just think would be a wonderful uh, movie. He at one point, he, he, he was a lifelong sufferer of depression and was very, you know, his interest in psychology came from a very personal sort of depth. But he, he took himself off to the French Riviera to recover uh, from, a, from a breakdown and, and found himself in the company of Percival Lowell who was an astronomer and a kind of her- heretical scientist. Lowell had seen through a telescope the supposed canals on Mars and was a proponent of a lost civilization on, on Mars. Um, I mean, what he really was was saying, that look, we should be interested in, in Mars because we can see it. It's-, it's a planet in our solar system that is a relevant uh, target potentially for exploration, which, well, hello, but, you know, that's kind of been become kind of a major theme of, of science fiction and science. So here are these two guys who are both, you know, a little bit nuts. And they're both there because they've had breakdowns for various reasons. And you know what their response is? They go up in a balloon together.
0: I love it. I love that. That's so great.
1: (laughs) That's the pluralistic spiral solution. You know, they don't sit around complaining about, you know, orthodoxies or or being heretics. You know, they they say, let's go up in in a balloon, Mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. Um, So I don't know. I just I I think that's just an inspiring story. But but here's a here's a question that I, I think that that I'd like to hear your response to, because. Whether we talk about uh, dangerous ideas or innocuous ideas, and I I wonder Mm -hmm. who amongst our listeners wants to be uh, accused of having innocuous ideas, as if that's some sort of good thing. (laughs) My question for you is this. To what extent does meaning and uh, the implications and applications inhere in ideas— or is it really a question of how they're used? I mean, let's let's look at, at some ideas in terms of the six basic machines: the wheel, the axle, the lever, uh, the inclined plane, uh, the pulley, the screw, and the wedge. Okay, mm-hmm. um, MIT, one of our most distinguished universities, is uh, now getting. Uh, demanding that students, in order to get in, they have to create. They have to go through the process of creating these basic machines, I believe. Uh, Or alternatively, they can um, create a clock, you know, but they have to do something with their hands to show that they, you know, Mm -hmm. it's not just all on paper. Mm -hmm. I mean, aren't all those machines as ideas extremely dangerous,
0: Yes, if you think, <laughs> if you think that where we are currently as human beings uh, is perhaps detrimental to the survival of the planet um, or is, is, is perhaps detrimental to the safe existence of other human beings, I would reckon that they, that they are quite dangerous ideas. They got us where we are now.
1: Well, exactly. I mean, the, to the point where you can't subtract our current, you know, from our current position, any one of those, and, and you, you you change human reality. Yeah. And I, let's look at some other ones. The four great inventions of, of ancient China. And for people interested, Joseph Needham, his study of, of science and technology in China, which is a multi-volume thing, is absolutely fantastic. Mm-hmm. But just to recount, the four are papermaking, printing, gunpowder, and the compass, mm-hmm. okay? Those are pretty major inventions. Uh, let's just take two of those. Okay, gunpowder. All right, well, look, if that's not a dangerous idea, I, I don't know what one is. Right. But on the other hand, you think, okay, well, gunpowder, Yes. Well, let's look at some some really dangerous ideas. Gunpowder is, you know, a potent, volatile force with certain intentions in its use. But you take even something simple like dynamite, and we could move on up to to C4 Mm -hmm. with TNT maybe in the middle. The detonation velocity of dynamite is 20,000 feet per second. Think about Mm -hmm. that. And then think about, well whose name do we associate with dynamite? I think it's someone who gives out the Nobel Prizes. Yeah, it's somebody, Alfred Nobel, was that him? Yeah, yeah. And, and we have like, we have a peace prize named after, you know, really the nominal inventor of, of dynamite as we know it today. And we could go one step further and look at, you know, back to August 1945, mm. you know, and a couple of yeah. things dropped on the imperial forces of Japan. There was a, there was
0: a, f- a fat know? man and a little boy, I think. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Nothing dangerous about those ideas. Mm-hmm. And and think about the enormity of, of the impact, not just on two cities in Japan and an entire culture and an entire world. I mean the, the we are still in the aftershocks of yeah. of those those two decisions. Right. I'm I'm writing a piece on actually on the Atomic Testing Museum here in Las Vegas which I think is one of the finest regional museums in America. And the thing that I find just enormously haunting about it's just it's, got, it's not got a big footprint on, uh, on Flamingo uh, here in Vegas. It, it's not a huge building, but the density of information mm. is enormous. Mm. But the powerful thing is this wonderful domestic scene with J.C. Penney, which is now in a little bit of uh, bankruptcy trouble, I think, as a retail They'll chain. will bounce back. J.C. Penney <laughs> provided the mannequins oh. for the blast houses you know, to see what the impact of these, I mean, so talk about dangerous ideas. I mean, and think of the impact of, of, on the University of Chicago, on Princeton, on Cal Berkeley, and on academic institutions around the, I mean, when Eisenhower talked, you know, about the military industrial complex, but he, which he did more to, to help, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, he warned us about that. It It is sort of leaving office address. I mean, none of that would have been possible without the atomic bomb. Right. And now the threat of nuclear weapons still looms over us. I mean,
0: right, right.
1: those are really dangerous ideas. It, uh, yeah. And yet Richard Dawkins and others say that Rupert Sheldrake, questioning some dogmas, mm of scientism today mm-hmm. is dangerous it's like what well,
0: and i think that so i think that to to play the devil's advocate and then i'm going to immediately flip because i totally agree with what you're saying i think what people like dawkins and dennett are talking about is a very specific very american form of christian fundamentalist religion and i think that when they are waging their campaign against the bearded man in the sky and uh, more generally ignorance, as they put it, what they think that they're doing is they are combating the the fundamentalist Christian who will pray over their child who has bronchial pneumonia in the hopes that they get better and that child dies, right? That's what I think their thought process about the whole thing is, is that if you entertain these ideas that are anathema to their current understanding and and proselytizing of science that you will eventually get to a person who is anti-vaccine, who is pro-God to the point of being completely anti-medicine in general, and that will largely harm the population. But what you're bringing up, I think, is the most important point. They are foot soldiers for, frankly, the most dangerous ideas that human society has ever seen. There are some good things that have come out of that milieu right so we do have medicine we do have you know vaccines for polio we can combat the measles smallpox things like that all of that is great and wonderful although smallpox has a very kind of dark um uh history both in how it was used but how it was finally um vaccinated against it's it, but that's neither here nor there We do have things like our iPhones that we like. We have this computer that we're talking on. All of these things came from this sort of modernist conception of our world as being clock-like and materialistic. So there is that. But what somebody like Sheldrake is positing, and other people who are mystics, what they're saying is everything is yin and yang. It's not one side or the other. And what they're saying is that we can get to a certain point with our technology that is helpful to human society. You know, fewer people are in as dire poverty uh, uh, as there were. You know, a hundred years ago, right? Um, we have successfully lifted a lot of people out of disease and poverty, and that's great. We've you know connected the globe. People can hop on a plane. I can be in Singapore. You know, uh, tomorrow-ish, if I, if I wanted to, if I had the funds and if I wanted to. Um, so that is all well and good, but it came at this great cost. And I think that with the pushback, the yang to the yin of this whole thing, is that you need a little bit of this questioning, a little bit of this heretical science, frankly, that is pushing back against this establishment in order to bring it back into a kind of balance. If these two sides of the brain can cooperate with each other and actually have conversations, arguments, debates about these things, then we can get to a kind of homeostasis with these two conflicting ideas. But what's happening is that the evangelical, militaristic side of this scientism that we're talking about right now, aims to stomp out any dissent that it might see. And that is the fundamental problem of the whole thing.
1: I think that's well said. And I think that to go back to a framework which uh, you've used, and I, I really think it, it, I mean, it, it's something that's very familiar, but I like the way that you use it, of, of a profit and loss, uh, a, you know, kind of a balance sheet approach and, and what, what we lose in this kind of quarantining or as you say stomping out of dissent um, is so paralyzing. It, it, it's, it's, it's a little bit like um, you know the, the, the two uh, well the, the paradigm of, of cancer treatment. We have on the one hand chemotherapy <laughs> of bombing the hell out of the body uh, and then the alternative treatment is is an antigen approach, which which actually is available. That's a technology, a medical technology that exists in the world. My former business partner um, really looked into that in 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 China. Mm-hmm. Uh, it unfortunately didn't save his life because of the nature of where the tumor was. It was purely a physical right. thing. The tumor right. would compromised a major uh, artery, um, but the 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 tumor it was a pancreatic tumor. Uh, was shrunk from the size of a good-sized male fist down to the size of a ball bearing Mm -hmm. um, over six weeks of antigen treatment. And the reason why uh, the antigen um, serum is not available worldwide uh, is is purely money. Uh, It was actually a German drug. It is available in certain places, but it's outlawed in certain places. So again, Commercialism uh, enters in, but I, I wonder. You know, the other thing is is a plurality of mind here. Yeah, I, I want to yeah. list a couple of, of 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 innovations that were seen as as heretical discoveries or or points of investigation um, that 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 do have uh, mechanistic explanations, but they also have a, a very powerful organic. Nature mm-hmm. and, and a kind of magical nature. Um, they, our whole civilization hinges on them. They are just off the top of my head magnetism, uh, photosynthesis, circulation of the blood, uh, and germ theory. Now, all of those seem to me to have uh, a, a basis of, of mechanistic, of uh, susceptibility to mechanistic description and analysis. But all of them are fundamentally organic and and have mysterious other sort of properties. Look at the experiments of of Galvani and Volta. You know, I mean, also, I I don't know if people are, I mean, I think people might know um, we have you know, voltage and and galvanizing. Uh, so they've endure in the language, even if we don't know anything about electricity. Mm-hmm. Um, but Galvani was experimenting with frogs uh, with his wife. Mm-hmm. What a fabulous yeah, marriage yeah. they they must have had! Oh, totally. You know, no, it's
0: a great story. I mean, is it okay if I tell it? I, I just, Yes, please I, I do. I,
1: I think people will really enjoy this. I love
0: this story so much. So Galvani, um, he had this idea of something called uh, uh, animal, not animal magnetism, that's somebody else, um, but animal uh, electricity. We'll, we'll say that that's what it is. Yes. So he essentially rigged up a dead frog to a lightning rod. And when the lightning rod, when there was a big thunderstorm and the lightning hit the rod, the frog's leg would twitch and this created a firestorm in the scientific community because what he was suggesting is that living beings because uh, up till that point there was this idea of a, of a substance what was the name of this substance I can't recall um that was in us that animated us it was kind of a medieval hangover right um but what he was sort of positing and in his own way proving was that electricity caused... Things to move as they were, right? And so people were just, their minds were blown by this. And it was taken up by this guy Volta, where we get voltage from. Um, and he saw a problem with Galvani's experiment, which was that there were two metal plates uh, inside the frog. And the electricity went through the metal plates in order to make the frog's leg move. But his question was was the electricity making? The leg move, or was it the metal plates? Do I have it right so far? Right. Okay. Yeah, I thought right. I had that right. You do absolutely. So what he essentially discovered through his questioning of this scientific breakthrough was that different metals, in fact, do have charges when you put them close together, and he is where we get uh, the battery from. Like it was a, this massively important scientific discovery. So. If you're thinking the idea that electricity um, could reanimate a corpse, you might be thinking of Frankenstein. And
1: well, Mary Shelley picked up what, on that that's absolutely. What Mary Shelley that's a was very, talking about. very absolute yep. direct reference. Nope, it's, no, it's question. in Frankenstein.
0: It's in Frankenstein. She says that uh, the galvanization process could potentially lead to reanimation, and so this is this is where Frankenstein comes from. This is where a whole you know, mythos of reanimation kind of comes from. So it's, you know, in a way it's kind of Galvani's fault that we have zombie movies today. (laughs) You
1: know what I mean? Um, (laughs) Well... That's exactly, but also, I mean, I think there's a beautiful, I mean, in addition to Galvani working with his wife, which I think is a fabulous model for a marriage, particularly at that time, and I mean, God, you know, Italians and all that, yeah. <laughs> but Volta, Volta, he, although he disagreed and questioned uh, Galvani's conclusions, there was a great deal of, of genuine scientific respect, and it was Volta who gives us the verb galvanize, you know, in honor of Galvan. And I think that is a beautiful story of, of, of how science should be working in, in a, a kind of um, really humane, respectful way and to building to, to a great result. I mean, the idea of a battery is, is, is in itself just, you know, remarkable, You know?
0: And and, and so I think that's something that's so interesting when we want to talk about, you know, scientists who get discredited, okay, Um, who end up penniless and and starving on the street. Spoiler alert, that's what happens to Galvani, because this is right around the time, this is early 1700s. So, you know, America is in rebellion, the French are gearing up to uh, do something. Do, do a little something. I think we both know what's what's happening there. Um, and uh, you know, Napoleon rises to power. and Galvani was asked to sort of be taken on by this Napoleonic force that was rising in Europe. and Galvani was a devout Christian, you know he, he couldn't he couldn't align himself with something that was atheistic. I think I think I have that right. Um, and so because of that, all the propaganda machines began turning. and because Volta was successful in, as you put it, kind of respectfully building on what Galvani had had discovered, um, he was completely discredited, you know, And he, he died uh, sort of penniless and homeless, I believe. Um, which is which is very interesting for our modern times. I want our listeners to think about that, that Galvani's biggest mistake was not putting those two pieces of metal in the frog. It was saying no to Napoleon.
1: Well, this is the thing, you know, no, no one is above and beyond the, the political – uh, climate of, of their day. I mean, you know, think back to, you know, Sir Walter Raleigh getting, you know, in being imprisoned in the Tower of London twice and finally having his head chopped off, uh, and his heart, by the way, uh, excised and kept in a velvet bag by a woman, uh, whose name we, we still don't know, but one of his many, um, uh associates let's say down the years because he was in addition to being a scientist alchemist spy explorer poet lover you know how much more of a life can you can you lead but but think of some other heretical scientists you know think of of tesla or wilhelm reich oh yeah
0: yeah
1: I the orgone machine i mean fantastically interesting stuff and reich was you know very much uh I mean, I don't think that you can really understand uh, Jung without some reference to uh, what, what Reich was talking about. But it's
0: interesting. I haven't heard that before. That's it's, it's
1: very much, a, you know, he was looking at the idea of ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny mm-hmm. um, in, in very psychological terms, and that you could peel back the layers of the human psyche to the, the, the protozoan mm-hmm. level. That that this was a, a collective unconscious on a gigantic, interspecies scale, right. whereby in in some mysterious way, and you know I hate that, that when people you know the the Richard Dawkins people of the world you know whenever they hear the word mystery they get anxious mm-hmm. and they start to sweat a yes, little bit yeah you know, it's like their underwear sticks to their butt <laughs> yeah. you know and it's like no. Mystery's a good thing, it's a powerful inspiring force, and it's the driving wheel behind not only science but all of the human adventure. Mm-hmm. So let's kind of preserve some respect for mystery. She's a beautiful thing, mm-hmm. uh, a, a beautiful multi you know faced creature that is behind us all. Um, but all it really means is something to explore, something. That we don't know something to call us forward, and you know that looks to me a lot like what inspiration is. I, I think that's a good thing. Yeah. You know.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, I agree. I think that you put it great in a, a previous episode when you said that writing was a, was better when it was about you know expressing rather, or I'm sorry, exploring rather than expressing. So I think that what. Somebody like Dawkins could be accused of doing is expressing a lot more than he's exploring, which would again put him into the same, you know, genus as as, uh, as as priests, you know? He's, he's expressing a worldview. Because how interesting would it be if instead of being virulently opposed to somebody like Sheldrake, what if, what if Dawkins said, Oh, that's interesting? I'd never thought about it that way. You know, I mean, I think that Sheldrake has obviously taken on Dawkins' opinion because it's the dominant one. He's definitely wrestled with it. But what if Dawkins would just be like, uh-huh. I've never thought about it that way. How interesting would that be? He'd be back on my radar well, for sure. I
1: mean you would you would think, you know, at minimum there was some sort of personal and um dare I say it manly. Breakthrough of of at, at an individual level that would have to be respected, um, and and the idea that he rhetorically hasn't entertained the idea of of not being so predictable. I mean, to go back to you know of one of our first episodes when we were talking about Gregory Bateson's uh, insight that the more uh, predictable a message is. The less information it conveys, oh, wow.
0: yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. and I,
1: I think that's a startling, um, and that can actually be demonstrated in very uh, in, in cybernetic, mathematical, uh, information science uh, terms. In it, it, really is true. So that someone like Dawkins and all of the the people who who want to maintain uh, some sort of Personal ideological boundaries based on um, an unquestioning orthodoxy. Uh, you sort of wonder, well, what do they think that they're communicating? Because we already know what it yeah, is they want to right, say. Exactly,
0: exactly. And you we know, see this. We see this perpetuated on our twenty-four hour news cycle and on social media. We see the same ideas repackaged over and over again with a kind of sneering disavowal of anybody who might disagree with those things as though they are the sacred keepers of some sort of truth, this flame of truth, right? Um, I would like to, in future episodes, if you'll follow me and uh, uh, the listeners would follow me into some interesting kind of modern theology, because I think it would be helpful to think about who exactly Dawkins is railing against. And I would like to posit that the kind of um, worldview that Dawkins finds so abhorrent is actually the most basic, um, kind of overruled in its own arena type of worldview that he could possibly have, right? So I'd like to, I'd like to inhabit the straw man for a bit. What do you think about that
1: for a I future episode? That, I, I think that's a good idea. I think that's a good idea, and I think that uh, I'll be out on that target range with you because I I don't think that uh, I'm I'm not too worried about the ammunition that's going to be uh, sent our way. Um, <laughs> right. You know, I, I, I'm really not. Yeah. It's um, I, I do think it, it the. Um, and to tie it sort of back into our, our starting point, talking about chess, I you know, Gary Kasparov is, is, I don't know if people have, have uh, seen him uh, or, or watched him in a video context, but in one sense, he comes across very much as the kind of chess grandmaster type of mentality that you you might expect in a sort of archetypal or stereotypical sort of way. Um, but he comes out with some very, very interesting points that that are kind of uh, always defeating those uh, simplifications. And uh, he talks about um, when his when he was playing Deep Blue, you know, the AI program. Um, he has some very, very interesting things to uh, to say about the human alternative, and. I guess what he would put up against artificial intelligence is the capacity for intuition. And I think that might be an interesting way to prosecute uh Dawkins and Dennett and and the, the scientism orthodox uh ministers that we see today is 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 about intuition. I think that opens up some ground for us as as artists. Um I was also thinking of uh the wonderful uh, Count de L'Entremont, who uh, you know, died at only 24, born in Uruguay, uh, the author of Les Chants du Maldoror, which became so influential uh, you know, for the Surrealists. Uh, he was, it's in that work that we get the expression, a young boy is beautiful as the chance meeting on a dissecting table of a sewing machine and an umbrella. You know, um, all the surrealists, Ernst, Breton, you know, everybody just fell in love with that. Um, but here's an interesting line. And this, I think, shows the, the artist and the intuitive humanist uh, position on predictability. This is from the opening. It is not right that everyone should read the pages which follow only a few will be able to savor this bitter fruit with impunity. Consequently, shrinking soul, turn on your heels and go back before penetrating further into such uncharted, perilous wastelands. You know, what a beautiful alternative to please read my work, <laughs> please read me, please yeah. rate me on Amazon, please, yeah. you know. it. It's a totally... Um, in a sense, it's counterintuitive, but what all of the the great artists that I know of, and I think the great scientific ones show us, is that in the counterintuitive, that is the path towards any kind of truth that we can count on at all. And that's a pretty provisional kind of truth, because um, it's always undermined and expanded by another counterintuitive move in a chess sense by someone who comes later, right, you know, right. I think that's something to, to bear in mind that um, it's not all over as Dawkins says, it's, it's not all known. It's not all just, we're just mopping up here, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it, it's not kind of, that's not where we're at. Know, we're man. we're just getting started. <laughs> I
0: don't know. It's that sounds, uh, that sounds a little dangerous to me.
1: Yes, it does. And and we celebrate that, you know, absolutely. As they say in skydiving, checking in, checking out, you know, that's what you say as you go out the door and it's, uh, and it's just beginning, you know, it's just beginning. That's the beauty of where we're at now. I think um, it, it's far from over. And, and we're really, if we, if we had the heart or people, you know, some people really don't like that word, you know, Corazon, just on its own. They just don't like that concept. It's too metaphorical, too metaphysical, or it's too much of a challenge at the cellular sort of level. Um, but if we had the heart to really embrace the opportunities that we face now, as opposed to the challenges, the darkness, the despair, the horror, you know, Um what might we see? What might we see? And I, I think it, it's going to be something that no one has predicted. It's not what the transhumans want to be uploading. It's not about going off into space. We are in space. I never understand that when people say, let's go, let's go into space. Where do you think we are? <laughs> You know, but that's, I I think there's another kind of of renaissance and renaissance that we could be on the brink of if, if we allowed ourselves to be, but we have to embrace some dangerous ideas.